So we're just working through uh, a series, uh, Church Distinctors, Values, um, and we're looking at them, you know, and, you know, for them to be kind of like the DNA of our church and the things that we are looking at. Um, we've looked at li- being liberated. Next week, we're looking at um, uh, caring. Uh, the other week, we've looked at being devoted. And these are not things that we're saying, yeah, we've hit the mark. Yes, this is us. Um, we're saying these are what we're aiming. This is what we would love to be. This is what, um, you know, would love Christ Church to be. So, um, in that respect, together, this is what I'm uh, looking at today, and unity, the unity of the church. So just an introduction. <laughs> when I was coming up with this, I, I realized that all my introductions are to do with TV. So it just probably explains where I'm at. But I grew up in the, in the uh, 1980s, um, and I see that as the kind of making a comeback now. You see things like Stranger Things and... and you know, all, all the rest of it. And I used to love, and, and I think the reason why I like Stranger Things is, is because it harks back to TV that I really used to like when I was younger. So Stranger Things is about a group of kids, um, different, eth- uh, different uh, ethnicities, different life experiences, etc. And what they do, they come together and to defeat some evil in their town, or something like that. It harks back to Goonies, kids getting together, doing stuff, E.T., kids getting together, and I think I envisaged uh, myself uh, being one of those kids. And it just struck me when I was thinking through this that it's built into us, isn't it, into humanity, to be drawn into a community, a group of people that come together and go in the same direction. It can be seen in humanity, and it actually produces good, Good things happen when people come together and we work and collaborate and, th- and you know, we move in the same direction. It's awesome. But obviously, we've seen as well in terms of humanity, so you see that it can be absolutely devastating. People coming together, going in the same direction and causing absolute chaos. It can be seen by musicians. If I came on a Sunday and, he said, and we said, today it's just going to be a case of Matthew Boy is going to play drums. That's it. There's no, no accompaniment, there's no piano, there's no bass. I don't think anyone would be too happy. I'd be all right, but I don't think anyone would be happy about that. Or sports teams, like the Lionesses, you know, for example. You know, we all rally behind the, these sports teams who um, show this, these great team ethic, these people from all different walks of life coming together, going in the same direction and winning Euro 22. Got people like Alan Shearer, for example, praising football teams on Match of the Day, saying they didn't play as individuals, they played as a team. By the way, he wasn't talking about Manchester United when he was talking about that at the moment. Probably one of the worst teams I've seen in a long time. Sorry, Joe, but it's true. We even have the old adage saying that there is no I in team. All right? I think you get where I'm going. I don't need to labor this point. But in terms of humanity, it's in our DNA. It's in our DNA that we want to belong to something. And even sometimes when we want to isolate ourselves, we can see the blessings and we can see the advantages of not only belonging to a community, but actually working together within a community. This is something deep within us. Why is that? Why is that? I don't know if we've ever stopped and thought. Sometimes we walk through life and just, th- just go on blindly and just think, this is just how things are. But why is it that we love to be within a team, or we work collaboratively with people? Well, the simple answer is, is that God created us. He created us to be like that. He created us to be in community with people so that we're not on our own. 
And not only that, he has given us individual gifts, each one of us, individual gifts that beautifully work together so that the community becomes one. Now, this may surprise you, but everything I've just mentioned, sport, music, uh, TV programs, they're merely shadows, really. The ultimate reason is that the most powerful expression of unity and togetherness is supposed to be within the church. It's supposed to be within the church. Now, you may hear that and think, really? In the church, Francis Chan, an American author and pastor, said this, when you consider all the divisions that have fractured the church into literally thousands of branches, it's hard to believe that we all claim to follow the same Jesus who prayed before he died that we would be all one as he and the Father are one. You know, we have the, if you look on the outside objectively of the church, you've got a church, the wider church, that have split into denominations, and then within those denominations there's different splits, and then within those different splits you've got different people who potentially have gone onto social media and said, have created followings for people to say, I've, you know, this is my way. And we see here, and I've just made this maybe outlandish statement saying the most powerful expression of unity and togetherness is actually supposed to be within the church. Jesus prayed in John 17 verse 21, as he's talking about us, he says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you have gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I've loved them, even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that because of the power he has given to the church, that the church will be perfectly one, and as a result, people would see that and they would be changed. People will see the unity in the church and because they see the unity in the church, something supernatural happens. Is this even possible? We're going to explore this briefly in Ephesians in three ways. Firstly, we're going to look at how this is possible. Secondly, we'll look at our calling as a church. And thirdly, we'll see what this looks like practically. So, how is this possible? Uh, Ephesians is full, the book of Ephesians, is full of gospel good news from start to finish. It's concise and it's really worth reading all the way through. The first half of Ephesians is full of gospel explanation. The second half is almost entirely full of gospel application. So you've got... Um, you know, Paul who wrote uh, Ephesians um, whilst he was, was in Rome and he was in prison. And the first half, one to three, giving amazing truths about the gospel, which we're going to quickly look at. And then from verse four, he talks about the practicalities of how to live it out. It's a really great book. He wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus as a source of deep encouragement. Before we go into chapter four, I'm gonna, we're going to take a helicopter view of uh, chapter one to three. The good news of the first chapter centers around the words blessings, especially all of the blessings that 
being in union with Jesus has. So we're going to list on the screen. So I'm going to list on the screen so you can reflect and just think through. I'm not going to, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is something just to give you context in terms of, to prepare you for what we're going to talk about in, um, in chapter four. So, blessed, he talks about. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. We are spiritual blessings in Christ. We are blessed, guys. We are blessed. Just reflect on those. Chosen, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We are blessed and chosen. We are adopted. He predestined us for adoption. He took us as people who, had, who were orphans and he took us on to be our heavenly father. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Redeemed. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Next one. Ephesians, and in him you and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling. He, he, he molds us and shapes us to become a dwelling, to become a dwelling place. So that's a helicopter view of, cha- of uh, chapter one to three. But there's, the, there's one verse that I want to look at, and it's the next one. And it's about God exercising his power. And he says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. Sorry, it went on a little bit there. Paul says, if you are a believer here today, do you know that the power you have available to you? All of us here today, if you believe that Jesus is your savior, you have that power, this incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. It is often something that we always say. You have the same power that's working in you as the, uh, as the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And it's something that is amazing to hear, but we take it for granted. It's not something that we should take for granted. It's an absolute truth. We have that power available to us. It might not feel like it. It doesn't feel like it on a Tuesday morning when you're going to work and it's raining outside and the kids are kicking off and you're like, oh, you know. But you have this power available to you. His power is not just available to us individually, but it's available to us corporately. We as a church have access to that power. In fact, not the case of we have access to that power. We have that power living within us. He's given that to us. It's just mind-blowing. Don't overlook and take it for granted. Then this brings us to our second point. If, as we get to chapter 4, the start of our reading. And Paul says this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, or in the ESV it says, Therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Here's another TV analogy. In our house, 
most of us, I say most, are Marvel nerds. We love Marvel. When Black Panther 2, the trailer came out, it was a moment in our house. Um, one of my favorite ones, or Marvel um, characters, is Spider-Man. Is Spider-Man. It sounds ridiculous as I say it, but bear with me. But when I was younger, I, I can remember my mum giving me this VHS of Spider-Man, like an 80s version, really cheesy 80s version, but I loved it. I can remember just watching it continually. And there was this phrase that um, has gone from the early editions of Spider-Man and to the latest film. And it's when, um, there's different versions of it, but when um, Peter Parker's Aunt May passes away, spoiler, when she passes away, and when Uncle Ben, you know, he goes to the news agents and he gets shot. <laughs> you see, you've seen that version a billion times. Um, he, he always says something, which I think has come from somewhere else, but for me, he's come from Spider-Man. But he says something to him, which has passed throughout the whole uh, of it. He says, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. He's telling about the gifts that, that he's had. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. He says, Peter, you've been given this gift, and this gift is immeasurable power that you have. And because of this gift, you are now called to live differently. You cannot live the same way. And every time they use, they use this within the VHS that I've watched or the cinema that, uh, you know, that I've seen the new film on, it's always a turning point for Peter Parker because it, it turns him from actually not sure of his identity, what he's, what he's supposed to be, into the person he's supposed to be because he's known, he knows he's got this great power. And with that great power comes great responsibility. You have to live differently. Now, Paul is saying at the chapter, start of chapter 4, he's saying to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying to us at Christ Church Escape, he says, with great power comes great responsibility. Because everything that I've told you in chapter 1 to 3, because everything that you have in Christ, because of the immeasurable power that you have access to, because of the power that is working in you and through you, you are called to live differently. Your lives can never look the same. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Imagine belonging to a community like that. Imagine a place where you are loved for being you, warts and all. Where people just really, really cared for you. We're concerned about you. We're serving you just like Jesus serves us. And you are doing that for them. Imagine what it would be like for our friends and family and neighbors to see that. Verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. Paul is saying something strongly that's really important. Unity in the church is not a nice to have. Unity in the church is not a nice to have. It's a call to action from God. Unity in the church is not a nice to have. Unity in the church is not a good idea. It's not something where we say, oh, it'd be nice if we all got along. 
It's not something where we say, oh, I need to get on with that person. Oh, it'll be nice if we all just get along and we end up all holding hands and, and, and it being this ethereal, ineffective thing that's fake. No, unity is at the heart of God. We are called the body of Christ. We are Christ's body. That is a sacred thing. We, we, we speak about Christ's body and it's something that goes overhead. Just imagine what that means. We are representing Jesus within this world. We are representing Jesus within Escape. We're representing Jesus within Castleford. Us as a body of people is a sacred and holy thing. What I want to do is lift up the idea of unity to you. As we fight for truth, as we fight for holiness, as we look towards them, as well we should, we need to fight for unity and not to have it as something, as a bit of a sideline of, it'll be a nice to have thing, is a call to action from God. Verse 7, but each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does, he, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, there's so much in this verse, I could potentially do a full sermon on that. I'm not going to, you'll be very um, pleased to hear. But there's two things I want to really pull out of it. First one, for the church to receive power to be perfectly one, Jesus had to come to this earth and live in our mess and rise again. He ascended higher than the, in the heavens in order to fill the universe and now he is ruling and reigning and, and he is the king over all creation. That's, basically, that's the gospel in a nutshell within that, um, within that. He came to this earth, he died a death that he shouldn't die and he rose again and to fill the universe and, and the Holy Spirit is now with us and that's why we have, we have this access to this amazing, immeasurable power. When Jesus left his throne room and descended into our mess, he displayed what a call to oneness looks like. Now, this is something that I've been chewing on for quite a while. He descended into our world of broken relationships, a world of mess and Jesus and chaos, and Jesus got his hands dirty. There was a bit in John, verse 35, it's not on the screen, where Jesus says to his disciples, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, it's interesting when he says that, because that's just after he has um, spoken to Judas and saying, you're going to betray me in front of his 12 disciples. And it's just before... He confronts Peter about denying him. And he says that little thing in the middle of it. The king of the universe who came from heaven, now being betrayed and denied by human beings, he calls his friends. And Jesus says, despite this, love one another. That's how people will know that you are my disciples. Have you ever been betrayed? Let down? Hurt? By people in the church? The answer to that will absolutely be yes. The reality is, and this has been, like I said, going in my mind for a while, the call to unity isn't a um, manufactured fake existence where we're holding hands and saying it's all going to be all right and we're all 
it's, 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 it's just not real. The call to unity is messy, is painful, and it's going to constantly require forgiveness and grace from all sides. That's the reality of the situation. Now, when I was thinking about this, because it's really kind of hit me this week, shouldn't it be easy? We're calling us to be unified. Shouldn't it be an easy thing for us to love one another and to um, care for one another? And it's beautiful. And again, by the Holy Spirit's power, yes, it happens. But it's messy because people let us down. We let people down. We have to constantly forgive, constantly show the grace that we have been showed. In fact, the next song where we're going to sing has the lyrics, I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. I'm really thankful that God works in messy people in messy situations so finally going to look at what does this look like practically verse 11 so christ himself gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of god and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of christ the order in which Paul writes, that writes this is, is really important. It goes like this. And it's, again, a big passage, so we're going to quickly go through it. We've got the apostles and prophets who've laid the foundations. That's what we read about in the Bible, of the revelation of Christ. You've got the evangelists. You've got the people who uh, tell um, people the good news, and, and, and those people then come into, into a church. When people hear about Jesus, they change, and, and then churches are born. Pastors, teachers are able to equip people for works of service, and the ESV actually says works of ministry. The aim of Ash and the elders and the aim of the leadership team here is to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, equip the members of the church for works of service, for ministry. To lift Christ up and allow you to gaze at him and be inspired to serve and use your gifts. Jesus said in Matthew, Chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus, as, just as the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How can we be like Jesus and serve the church? God has given everyone in this church a gift. They've given us something. Something that you're passionate about. Something that you've got a gift for. You're unique. And everyone in the church has a vital role to play. What gifts do you have? You may say nothing, but that isn't true. There is a gift that you have. Something God has given you that is essential for the body of Christ to be built up. You are an essential part of that. I went to the Keswick Conference a few weeks ago, and the speaker said something which, which is so true. He said, there's no little people in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter how big or small you feel your gift is. It's absolutely valid. It's something which helps the body of Christ to grow and mature. Something that God is maybe tugging at you, if so, just speak to us, speak to myself, speak to Anne, speak to Paul, whoever, and about a different ministry. Something where an area where you can serve. And then verse 14 in Ephesians, it carries on. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul gives a really stark image of infants being tossed back and forth and the sea where there is no stability. 
you don't need to have a great imagination just to see the picture. See, if the building up of the church through the members serving leads to maturity, a sign of immaturity is that the church members have no stability and leave every wind of teaching they hear. If we don't allow the scriptures to explain what the scriptures mean, then we're in big trouble. There's a danger that we can interpret scripture to what we want to say just because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Or simply, we don't like what it says. We just read about the immeasurable power that Christ gives us. Who, how do we know who Christ is? Well, the whole Bible tells us who Christ is. In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Who is God? Well, if you look in Genesis, it says that God is the creator. Genesis 1, 1. And then all the way through the Bible, it says, What is God like? Well, God is good. God is good. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is powerful. And he loves us, etc. We need to have the scriptures that God has, that God has written, if that's even the same. We need to have that to explain who God is, as opposed to our feelings. Because I, I can't rely on my feelings. I don't know about you, but my mood is often determined by the weather in the morning. And if it's raining and miserable, I'm a bit down. If it's sunny and bright, depending if it's not 40 degrees, I'm, I'm all right. You know, I feel like it's, it's going to be a positive day. My feelings are unstable, and our culture is un unstable. We can't rely on any of them. C.J. Mahaney, in his book, A Cross-Centered Life, said this, But if you trust your feelings first and foremost, if you exalt your feelings, if you invest your feelings with final authority, they'll deposit you on the emotional roller coaster which so often characterizes our lives. He goes on to say, The gospel and its events remain completely unaffected by what is agitating our emotions. The gospel is objective fact. God, Jesus, the gospel never changes. It never will. They are completely stable. They are objective truths that we can rest in. Can you imagine if we had to rest in what the culture says? In a thousand years' time, people are not going to care what we're talking about in this culture. Because there'll be something else that we're talking about. And then they'll be using that to define the Bible. But all that time, the Bible will be the one that is stable, that is unchanged, and with the word of God that will be able to speak into any culture. Now, you may say, okay, gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but what does that have to do with unity? Well, from verse 15, instead of speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. With great power comes great responsibility. Unity does not come at the expense of truth. I'll say that again. Unity does not come at the expense of truth. How does the body grow? By its members constantly speaking truth in love. To be constantly encouraging each other. To be constantly pointing out each other to the objective truths of the gospel. What does this look like? In verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Truth and love come together. The danger is, is when we sacrifice one for the other. Because on one side, you can have people who want to defend the truth at all costs. And with that, they obliterate unity and offend different people and just stamp across anything. Because they're defending the truth. On the other side, we have people in the name of love who will not defend any truth and not challenge any truth. So just kind of let bygones be bygones and just let people do uh, think whatever they think or, or, or not point to the objective truths of the Bible. Truth and love, when it comes together, the church matures and grows. Verse 16, from him the whole body joined up and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, the question I asked at the start, was it perfect, or is it, is it perfect, is it possible to have perfect oneness, unity with each other in, in our church, and indeed the wider church? And if it does, what does it look like? Well, the answer is absolutely yes, it is possible. As we have God's immeasurable power which transforms us. It's not about what we have done. The, the danger of, of when we go through this and we look at the practical part of what Paul is, Paul is speaking about, that when that we think, oh, I better pull up my bootstraps and I better start liking that person and doing this, that, and the other. But it's all about what Jesus has done. The reason that we went through uh, chapters one to three is because it's showing how God has done everything for you. You are adopted, you are redeemed, you are blessed. God has made you into a dwelling place. You have this power, this immeasurable power within you that corporately you have access to. It's not about you. We just need to be silent and stare at Jesus and pray for the power of his Holy Spirit. It's not about us. It's not about how much we try, but by Jesus changing us. And what does it look like? It looks like a community of messed up people who need lots of grace and forgiveness. That sounds pretty much right for I'll say Christchurch. We're all messed up. I'm not going to say that anyone's perfect here because we're not. We're all messed up, including myself. And we need lots of grace and forgiveness. And we are being equipped to serve one another, to love one another, no matter what the cost. And be continually encouraging and speaking truths to each other in love. We pray that throughout the years that Christchurch is a community of people which displays a holy, spirit-empowered unity to the world, and through that they see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, they are truly changed.